when Sandra Boss, a Stanford and Harvard-educated, high-earning executive, met her dream man at a Clue-themed cocktail party, she thought she hit the jackpot. His name was Clark Rockefeller, and he said he was a member of the Rockefeller family. He was smart, witty, and most importantly, charming. Sandra quickly fell head over heels for Clark, and they got married. They dreamt of an extravagant life together. But after tying the knot, things began to take a strange turn. Sandra began to notice some really unnerving things about her husband. He didn't have a social security card, he was cagey about his history, and he was becoming more controlling and emotionally abusive by the day. And most glaringly, for being a Rockefeller, a family worth billions, Clark didn't seem to have any money. In fact, Sandra was supporting him. As Clark boasted about his status and family name to anyone and everyone he met, those closest to the couple were growing concerned, as Clark's claims about his past just didn't seem to add up. Over time, Sandra began to doubt the legitimacy of her husband's stories. What was this man really hiding? Everyone began to wonder, who is Clark Rockefeller? Come to find out, the reason he didn't like to delve into his past was because he had a closet full of skeletons. Sandra would find out their life was an entire lie. And after more than 10 years of marriage and a child together, Sandra eventually found out that the man she married didn't exist. It's been referred to as the longest running con in FBI history. And the story of Clark Rockefeller goes to show that oftentimes, the truth is truly stranger than fiction. Hey guys, welcome back to Avery After Dark. I am your host, Avery Ross. As always, if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Your kind words and support mean the world to me. Today's case is one of the most insane true stories I have ever heard. Let's jump right into it. It was a nice evening in 1993 in the Big Apple, New York City, and Sandra Boss was headed off to a cocktail party. Sandra, a young professional, was quite the catch. She was a high-earning senior executive at McKinsey, a very well-known management and consulting firm, and she was smart. She studied at both Stanford and Harvard. She was accomplished and made good money, but there was something that was missing in her life. She hadn't met the one yet. That evening's get-together was a Clue-themed party hosted by some mutual friends, some she knew, and another man named Clark that she had not met yet. Clue, the board game, and movie is a murder mystery where the players try to identify who at the dinner party is a cold-blooded killer. Sandra was given the character Scarlet, so she tied a scarf around her neck and made her way to the party. After arriving, she finally met the host, Professor Plum. Of course, that wasn't the man's real name, just the character he was playing for the evening. He was donned in maroon corduroy trousers, and introduced himself to Sandra as James Frederick Mills Clark Rockefeller. He went by Clark, and he told Sandra all about himself, his impressive background, and most importantly, that he was a member of the infamously wealthy and powerful Rockefeller family. One of America's richest families, the Rockefeller fortune began with oil tycoon John D. Rockefeller, and he was America's first billionaire. He founded Standard Oil in 1870, and today, the Rockefeller fortune is spread out among more than 70 heirs. The Rockefellers are worth billions, and Clark said that he was a more distant relative, but a Rockefeller nonetheless. 
The two didn't get to talk much at the party. Sandra was a bit shy. But in the days following, Sandra got an unexpected phone call from Clark. He reached out to her and told her that he would love to see her again, and Sandra was flattered. As she began to get to know Clark, she fell in love. She said that he was the most intelligent man she had ever met. Clark told her more about his status as the heir to the Rockefeller oil dynasty, and also told her that his parents died in a car crash when he was only 18 years old. Impressively, Clark told Sandra that he attended Yale University at only age 14. He was just that smart. Time passed, and after dating for a while, Sandra decided that this was it. This was what she had been looking for her entire life. A man like Clark. Someone accomplished, smart, witty, classy, and worldly. Clark was also incredibly charming. Not to mention, everyone that knew him gave him rave reviews. Career-wise, Clark told Sandra that he worked for a consulting firm, but it wasn't a paid job. But he collected expensive art and had this upscale New York City apartment, so outwardly, it appeared this guy had his life in order. The two eventually made the trip to Nantucket and got married in 1995. And Sandra was thrilled as they toasted to their future together. All the possibilities. They both wanted to become parents and talked about having children. They were both looking forward to building their family. But out of the blue one day, Clark told Sandra that they needed to move to New Hampshire because of something that happened at Central Park. They hadn't been married long and were both settled in New York City, but according to reports, women there had gone to police with complaints and concerns about Clark's behavior. Something happened in Central Park. The details surrounding what happened at the park remain a mystery, but after police confronted Clark, he came to the conclusion that he and Sandra needed to get out of New York City. Now to up and move out of a city, your home, it seems that something big must have happened. But Clark somehow convinced his wife and Sandra said, okay, and the two relocated and moved to Cornish, New Hampshire. And shortly after in 2001, the couple had a daughter named Ray. Around town, Clark would boast about his ties to the Rockefeller family and gain membership to the most exclusive country clubs. He continued telling everyone that he went to Yale and also that he owned a big business in Canada. He also had no problem informing everyone he met about his wealth and how much money he had. And over time, Sandra was beginning to notice some really bizarre and unsettling behavior from her husband, Clark. For one, he was becoming more and more controlling over Sandra, insisting that he walk her to work every day. He kept an eye on her every move, her work life, her social schedule. Every aspect of their day-to-day -day life was heavily monitored and controlled by Clark. There was just something off about Clark. He was paranoid. And it wasn't just Sandra that was becoming concerned. Family and friends close to the couple were noticing that none of Clark's extravagant stories were adding up. Sandra found that Clark did not have a social security card. He didn't have a driver's license. He didn't even have a credit card to his own name. Also, one would think if you married a Rockefeller, you'd be living the high life. But it was quite the opposite in Sandra's case. She realized that she was the breadwinner for the family, not Clark. Sandra was earning all the money for the household, supporting not only herself and her daughter, but also her husband. Clark was a stay-at-home dad and didn't hesitate in spending any of Sandra's money to keep up appearances. Clark did not contribute any money at all, but at the same time, 
held complete control over their finances at all times and would often tell Sandra that she wasn't making enough money. Sandra was beginning to see there was something really wrong here. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. Getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process, especially because we're always growing and changing. They call them growing pains for a reason. They can be tough. As I've gotten older, I found that things that used to work for me don't anymore. So adding new, healthier habits into my routine has really helped me. One of those healthy habits is therapy. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding, because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk through things. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. No matter what's going on in my life, therapy has this great way of bringing me back to the present moment. I find that sometimes I'm living too much in the future, which causes anxiety. But sitting down, working one-on-one with a therapist is so grounding. And I always leave the session feeling so much better and more hopeful about the future. Because one thing we all need is hope. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com Avery today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Avery. As time progressed, Sandra noticed that her husband, Clark, was also very cagey about his taxes. He repeatedly told Sandra that although they were married, she should file her tax return as a single person. At one point, Sandra's work, McKinsey, required that a certified public accountant do her taxes. And when Clark got wind of this, he said no and found another CPA for Sandra. And when questioned later, the CPA said that Clark told him that he was Sandra's brother, not husband, and asked him to file hers as a single person. Whenever he was questioned about anything, Clark would always reinforce that he was a Rockefeller. Everything was fine, but just didn't have access to any of the Rockefeller money. And for reasons that are unclear, Sonda chose to stay in the marriage. She said the only reason she continued to work it out with Clark was because of their daughter. Clark Rockefeller had some, let's call them strange habits. For being as rich as he said he was, he never carried any money. He was always paranoid about security and privacy to the point where he would carry a radio device that he said was connected to the Rockefeller offices. Clark also refused to eat in restaurants because he said you just couldn't trust the kitchen. He would only eat in private clubs, of which he was a member of several. And on the topic of food, another strange thing was Clark only ate white foods. White turkey on white Pepperidge Farm bread, except in some cases when he would order Oysters Rockefeller. Clark eventually grew to be very abusive towards Sandra. She said there was a lot of anger and yelling in their household. In 2006, the family was making a move. Sandra herself purchased a home for $2.6 million in Boston. So Sandra, Clark, and their daughter made the move to Massachusetts. And after 10 years of marriage, Sandra had had enough. 
She knew there was something very wrong with her husband. She felt like she had no idea who she was even married to. So the same year they moved to Boston, Sandra secretly contacted a private investigator to look into Clark's background. Sandra discovered, just as she thought, Clark was not who he claimed to be. In fact, he had been lying to her for the past decade about who he was. The investigator told Sandra that Clark Rockefeller was not his name or true identity. In fact, he told her that he didn't know who this man really was. So Rockefeller? More like Crockefeller. Every single thing about Clark was a complete and total lie. This confirmed her suspicions and was all she needed to hear. Sandra, feeling completely duped and conned, immediately filed for divorce from Clark. In the divorce agreement, Clark agreed to give Sandra custody of their daughter in exchange for $800,000 and various other personal items. One of those items being Sandra's wedding dress, which is very strange and unclear why Clark would want to keep her wedding dress, but he did. Clark agreed to a mere three visitations a year with his daughter for eight hours a time, which is just 24 hours out of the year in total. After the divorce was finalized, Sandra changed her daughter's name and moved the two to London for a new start away from Clark. And for the most part, he was out of their lives. So why would Clark agree to this kind of custody agreement? Taking less than a million bucks and only spending a measly three days a year with his only daughter? It's believed that Clark agreed to these terms to avoid anyone involved in the case or the courts to dig any deeper into his real identity. It seemed that Clark was hiding something pretty substantial in his past, something that he didn't want out. Sandra tried to move on with her life as best as she could, still living with a million and one questions as to who she was really married to. And Clark's true identity was still a mystery, but one thing was for certain. After losing his daughter in the divorce, Clark began plotting on how to get her back. On July 27, 2008, Clark his daughter, and a social worker were in Boston's Back Bay neighborhood on a walk around Boston Common. Sandra was waiting in a hotel room nearby, ready to collect her daughter when the visitation ended. But this court-supervised visit was going to take a sinister and unexpected turn. Clark, his daughter, and the social worker were walking along the road when suddenly, the three were approached by an SUV. Clark then quickly shoved the social worker aside grabbed his daughter and jumped into the SUV, hitting his daughter's head into the doorframe of the car in the process. The social worker jumped up in an attempt to hold onto the vehicle by the door handle as it pulled away. She heard as Clark continued to order the car to speed away, and it did. The car dragged the social worker for a few feet before she eventually let go. The social worker immediately alerted the authorities to tell them that Clark had just abducted his daughter. And later that night, a warrant charged Clark with custodial kidnapping and assault with a deadly weapon, the SUV he escaped in. And Clark's whereabouts were unknown. He was on the run with his daughter and was now one of the most wanted men in America. For Sandra, this news was a mother's worst nightmare. Sandra had no idea what Clark's intentions were, nor where he took their daughter. She truly had no idea who Clark was or what he was capable of. And in the meantime, Clark had changed his name and identity and brought his abducted daughter along with him to Baltimore, Maryland. There, he purchased an apartment for the two of them for nearly a half a million dollars. Clark was now going by Charles Chip Smith, 
and told people that he was a sea captain. After securing his apartment, he met with an owner of a local marina and set up an agreement to keep his catamaran there. It appeared he was setting up a brand new life for himself there. At this very same time, police were on a massive manhunt. FBI were on the lookout for Clark, and they found someone who was able to share some vital information about the abduction. The getaway driver. Everyone was wondering who this accomplice was. The individual driving the SUV that day was identified as a friend of Clark, a woman named Eileen Ang. The two had met taking sailing lessons and were casual friends. Eileen said she didn't think much of it when Clark asked her to pick him up in Boston that day under the guise of driving him and his daughter to New York so they could go see his boat. She told authorities she had no idea Clark was kidnapping his daughter and said once Clark and his daughter were in the car, he told Eileen to not use her cell phone and also refused her request to stop and get gas. Clark had Eileen drop the two off at Grand Central Station in New York City where he got out of the car with his daughter. Eileen said, have a nice trip, and then drove off. Shortly after that, she said she was notified about what Clark had done and said she was duped by him. And after the abduction, she immediately alerted officials and was questioned by the FBI for 12 hours. I am a bit confused how she didn't see or notice the frantic nature of the pickup and also see the social worker was hanging off the side of the car and realized something was off. But anyways... Eileen was cooperating with officials, and FBI now knew that Clark had left New York City via Grand Central Station, but it remained a mystery as to where they went. For nearly a week, no one knew where Clark was, where Sandra's daughter was, or if the two of them were even still alive. All Sandra knew was that this man was deranged and said she lived in terror every day as she waited for any information. We'll be right back. You're back with Avery After Dark. Finally, a week after Ray was abducted, FBI managed to track Clark down to that Baltimore apartment. They knew he had changed his name and rushed there to save Ray. FBI concocted a scheme to lure him out of the apartment by telling him that his catamaran was sinking at the marina. And Clark played right into it. Once receiving word about his boat, Clark left the apartment where agents surrounded him. Thankfully, authorities found his daughter unharmed inside the apartment and she was reunited safely with her mom. Clark Rockefeller was arrested on the kidnapping and assault charges and pled insanity, and he was held without bond. As investigators began digging into his past, they learned that Clark Rockefeller didn't exist. This was not a real person. He was not a distant relative of the Rockefellers. He actually had no relation to the family whatsoever. He was not who he said he was. Everything was a lie. And this kidnapping blew the entire lid off a 30-year con. In August 2008, police found that Clark Rockefeller was actually a man named Christian Gerhard Schreider. And this was just the tip of the iceberg. But finding out this man's true identity was no easy task. He was conclusively identified by forensic examinations conducted at the FBI laboratory in Quantico, Virginia. They did this after testing a wine glass that Christian had drank from weeks before in Boston. DNA and fingerprints were taken from the glass, crossed with DNA from his daughter Ray, and then matched a latent print from Christian's immigration file from the early 1980s. Investigators learned that Clark, or we're gonna call him Christian now, Christian grew up in a small town in West Germany. 
From early on, friends and family said that he was obsessed with one thing, making it to America. He dreamed of another life there and was gonna do whatever it took to make it happen. In 1978, an opportunity presented itself one day when Christian met an American couple who was traveling through Germany. They got to talking, Christian becoming particularly intrigued when they said they were from the United States. And in an attempt to be polite, the couple told him, hey, if you're ever in Connecticut, come stop by. After this nicety that Christian viewed as an invitation, he saw a green light. It was time to go. A few weeks later, Christian got a plane ticket to the United States and used the couple's name to gain entrance, telling authorities that the American couple had invited him to come live with them. Christian then ventured to Connecticut, where he befriended a different family and somehow convinced them to let him stay with them for months. He reportedly did so by telling them that he came from one of the wealthiest families in Germany. This family nearly immediately regretted their decision. After Christian moved in, they were taken aback as he expected them to serve him breakfast every morning and cater to his needs. He was eventually accepted as a foreign exchange student at a high school in Connecticut, but the family eventually felt like he was overstaying his welcome and were quite tired of the entitlement and narcissistic behavior, so they told him to leave. At this point, Christian knew that he needed a green card to stay in America. Christian then moved to Wisconsin and enrolled in a class at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. There, he was on the hunt, and he found an unsuspecting woman to seduce, charm, and con. 22-year-old Amy Dunkey. Amy was a young woman from Madison, and he asked her to marry him. To persuade her, Christian falsely claimed that if he was forced to go back to West Germany, he would have to go into the military and be sent to fight in the Cold War on the Russian front line. Amy reportedly felt sympathy for him and agreed that the two should get married. One day after the wedding, Christian left his wife high and dry. This marriage got him what he wanted, he had a green card, so after dumping his wife, Christian moved to San Marino, California. This was his new start in America, where he was set on making it in Hollywood. Amy later filed for divorce 11 years later in 1992. As soon as Christian landed in LA, he had a brand new name and a brand new con. He called himself Christopher Mountbatten Chichester and told people that he was a British royal related to Lord Mountbatten, a famous British naval officer. Of course, as he begins to tell people who he is, he is immediately accepted into the upper echelon in Los Angeles. In San Marino, he found a woman named Ruth Didi Soas and convinced her to let him move into her guest house. Didi was vulnerable. She had issues with alcoholism and was a single woman living alone, so Christian saw her as an easy target. He gave her his fake name, his fake backstory, completely lied to her about who he really was. But Didi moved him into her home and began supporting him. You may be saying, what? Didn't anyone see this? Wasn't anyone concerned? They were. Didi had a son named Jonathan Soas, and Jonathan had a wife named Linda. Both got wind that their mom had a strange man living off Didi and became concerned. Jonathan and Linda were a newly married couple and were in the process of starting their lives together, and they were both on the hunt for new jobs. But the presence of Didi's new house guest reportedly really bothered Jonathan and Linda. This man was a complete stranger and felt that he was taking advantage of Didi. In 1985, 
both Jonathan and Linda mysteriously disappeared. In the weeks before, Jonathan and Linda had told friends and family that Jonathan had gotten a job offer with the government. They said the two were asked to travel to New York to interview and that their trip was going to last around two weeks. It was believed that the couple was supposed to leave on February 8, 1985, but the couple never returned and was never heard from again. Their families were growing concerned, but were waiting it out. They thought that maybe the couple took some extra time in New York City as a vacation and were expecting to hear from them soon. But weeks later, Linda's sister Kathy received a call from a local kennel. This kennel informed Kathy that Linda had dropped off her six cats there for a two-week stay, but never returned to pick up her cats. Kathy knew at this point that something was very wrong. She knew that her sister would never ever leave her animals behind. Kathy decided to call John's mother, Dee Dee, hoping that she knew their whereabouts. Dee Dee told her that the couple was on a, quote, secret mission and was not able to contact any family members. Dee Dee's story changed each time Kathy called her, and Kathy believed that this was due to Dee Dee's alcoholism. Sadly, police weren't notified until months later, in April of 1985. The families told police that Linda and Jonathan had not been seen nor heard from in months, but with no evidence of foul play, police were not able to investigate any further, and it was thought that the couple just up and moved away. In the midst of all this, there was one name that was brought up repeatedly. Dee Dee's new and most recent house guest, Christopher, aka Christian, who Jonathan and Linda were not a fan of. Christian was named as a person of interest, and when asked, he told officials that he thought that Jonathan and Linda had taken off for Europe together. And this was all he said he knew, that they had up and moved to another country. But multiple neighbors were interviewed about Christian, and they remembered seeing strange colored smoke coming from his chimney around the time of the disappearances. Additionally, around the time that Linda and Jonathan went missing, another friend said that Christian had borrowed a chainsaw from a neighbor and also tried to sell a blood-stained rug to another friend. Mysteriously, three months after Linda and Jonathan went missing, a friend of Linda's named Sue received a cryptic postcard mailed from Paris, France. On the back, it said, quote, Dear Sue, kinda missed New York, oops, but this can be lived with. John and Linda, end quote. The postcard was not sent from New York, and Sue nor anyone else believed that this was sent by Linda or Jonathan. And another cryptic postcard was sent from France to Linda's family around the same time, and it didn't say where they were or when they would be returning. Linda's family said this was all very uncharacteristic of Linda. If she had moved away with her husband, Jonathan, they said she would have called and wanted to tell them about it, and coincidentally, these postcards were received right around the same time police were really starting to look into Christian. Many believe that Christian is the one behind these fake cryptic postcards and he somehow arranged for them to be sent. And not long after this, Christian mysteriously disappears from San Marino. He just up and left and didn't give Dee Dee a forwarding address. He reappears three months later in another wealthy area of the United States. Greenwich, Connecticut, with a new name that police had no way of tracing. There, months later, Jonathan Soas's truck is located by police being driven by a man who said that Christian either gave or sold him the truck under the fake name Christopher Crow. Police knew that this was another fake name and they had a con man on the run. 
police later identified human remains that were found in the backyard of where Jonathan and his wife lived, right next door to his mother's house and mere feet from Christian's guest house. And these remains were later identified as Jonathan's. But there was still no trace of Linda. We'll be right back. You're back with Avery After Dark. Meanwhile, in Greenwich, Christian was introducing himself as a big-time Hollywood film director and producer named Christopher Crowe. He told people that he produced and directed Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which was a real TV program at the time with a director named Christopher Crowe. It was just a different Christopher Crowe. And in Greenwich, he really pulled out all the stops. He was a real showman. He would don suits embroidered with his fake initials, CCC, and was successfully able to convince people that he was from the upper echelons of society. He was hired by the brokerage firm S.N. Phelps & Company to work with the firm's computer systems, but was fired not long after when it was discovered that the social security number he had given them belonged to serial killer David Berkowitz, known as the Son of Sam, the notorious serial killer from New York. How twisted is that? Christian then was able to con himself into another gig, a sales manager of corporate bonds. There, he was paid over $150,000 a year. Employees at the company had no idea how he, a man with no experience in the field whatsoever, was able to talk himself into such a lucrative position. He was out-earning employees who had worked there for years and were trained in the field. And to add insult to injury for these employees, they said he would often walk around the office boasting about himself, his money, and his status as royalty. He also told them about his fleet of luxury cars he had purchased for himself, like his Rolls Royce. The individual who hired him stated that he was apparently really impressed with this Christopher Crowe character. He too was conned by Christian. And as expected, Christian was eventually fired after it was found out that he had no idea what he was doing and never sold a single bond. He conned himself into another high-paying job, but soon after, completely abandoned this Christopher Crowe persona when he found out that police had knowledge of this alias. He knew they were closing in on him in connection with Jonathan and Linda's disappearances. He then made yet another transformation, which many would say was his boldest and most audacious yet. The new alias was James Frederick Mills Clark Rockefeller, but he just went by Clark. He made his way to the Big Apple, began another con, and told everyone around New York that he was a member of the Rockefeller family. And this was where he eventually met Sandra, and we know how that ended. And after three decades, police finally uncovered Christian's sinister past, and it was finally time for him to be held accountable. Christian went to trial for the kidnapping of his daughter, and beforehand, his attorneys said they were going to use the insanity defense. When the case went to trial in Boston, Christian told the jurors that his daughter had communicated with him telepathically from London, begging him to rescue her, and that's why he abducted her. Experts testified, and one diagnosed Christian with grandiose-type delusional disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. Another doctor, a psychiatrist named Dr. James Chu, testified that Christian was emotionally abused by his father as a kid, and that's where it essentially all began, but also testified that he believed Christian was exaggerating his symptoms of mental illness and was very capable of knowing right from wrong. 
Thus, he did not meet the definition of insanity. In fact, he noted that Christian had meticulously planned the abduction well in advance, showing premeditation. Ultimately, Christian was convicted in the kidnapping of his daughter and with assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, the getaway car. He was sentenced to seven years. And as Christian spent his days behind bars, news reports indicated that a grand jury was to be convened in California to examine another case that he was connected to. In March 2011, LA County prosecutors charged Christian with the murder of Jonathan Soas. Finally, a long time coming for the Soas family. A murder trial was held in 2013 and Christian was convicted of first-degree murder. Evidence in the case was largely circumstantial, but jurors were most swayed by two plastic book bags found buried with Soas's remains. One from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where Christian attended classes between 1979 and 1982, and one from the University of Southern California, where Christian audited film classes. Jurors also heard evidence that Christian was in possession of Soas's pickup truck following the murder. A friend also said that during the time that Jonathan and Linda went missing, ground near the guest house where Christian was living had been dug up and he claimed that this was just because of plumbing issues. But this area was where Jonathan's remains were later found. On top of all that, police also did a luminol test of the guest house where Christian lived. Luminol is a chemical which emits a bright glow when it comes into contact with blood, even where stains were wiped away years before. Luminol was applied to the flooring of that guest house and there was a large glow on the floor. The large amount of blood indicated that someone was murdered there years before. And in August 2013, Christian was given the maximum sentence of 27 years to life with credit for one year served after finishing his sentence in Massachusetts. Sadly for Linda and her family, she has never been seen or heard from and still remains a missing person but it's believed that she is deceased and was probably killed by Christian the same time as her husband, Jonathan. As you would guess, in true narcissistic fashion, Christian has always maintained his innocence and has actually stated that Linda killed Jonathan, not him. There is absolutely no evidence pointing to this. Investigators believe there was an altercation between the Soases and Christian before their trip to New York. They believe Christian attacked and murdered them both but still have yet to uncover Linda's remains. Christian now sits in San Quentin State Prison and will be eligible for parole in 2029. He is now 62 years old. To think that someone like Christian will be walking amongst us within the coming years is an unnerving thought because he's never taken any responsibility nor showed any type of remorse for anything he did. It still strikes me how ironic it is that Sandra met Christian at a Clue-themed party a party where you had to guess if the person standing next to you was a murderer. Clark had the audacity to host that kind of party and indeed was a murderer. I imagine that Sandra was shocked and sickened to find out who Clark Rockefeller truly was. She spent over a decade with this man and had a child with him. Christian is the type of person that can be so dangerous because they're so charming and convincing. The only reason he was able to get away with con after con and murder for nearly 30 years is because of his ability to get unsuspecting people to believe his lies. I know I've met people like that, and I'm sure you have too. Those individuals that are just so smooth, so suave. They say all the right things, 
They're even flattering. But when you really get to know them, you realize they are nothing as they seem. It would be much more difficult to pull a long con like Christian did nowadays. If someone walked up to you today and told you that they're royalty, you can easily punch their name into your phone and within seconds, see boom, this person is a liar. But back then, Christian used the way of the world to his advantage, knowing that it would be much harder to validate or invalidate his claims back then. And it was proven that Christian is the most dangerous type of person because he's the type of criminal that will willingly take out anyone that would get in his way. These kinds of stories really reinforce that you should always look into someone's background before getting involved with them. No matter what the public perception is, no matter how amazing everyone tells you that they are. I always look into everyone I get involved with, both professionally and in a personal sense. It's just really important to watch your own back and make sure everything is on the up and up. And most times it is, but knowledge is power. Your time is much too valuable. Your life is much too valuable. But I do have a feeling if you're a listener of Avery After Dark, I don't need to convince you. I'm preaching to the choir here. I know you all have no problem doing a little digging and investigating. In fact, you're quite good at it. And that is what I love about you all. God bless you guys. I hope you have a great rest of your week. And a reminder, if you want all these episodes ad-free and want to support Avery After Dark, join the Patreon. Just $3 a month. That link to join is right there in the show notes. Until next episode, this is Avery After Dark.